Welcome back to our Tanakh Study Center series on Nevim. And today we continue our study of the contrast between Elisha and Yishayahu. And we will attempt to solve the chronological problems that arise in our study of the eight prakim about the miracles of Elisha. And use that study to help us appreciate again why the focus of the prophecies of Yishayahu are very different than the miracles that Elisha performs by contrasting the different generations and time periods that they're living in. Let's begin with a quick summary of the main point from our previous shiur. We tried to explain that there are certain times in Jewish history when there's a tremendous problem in regard to the very belief in God, either that God exists or that He takes care of the Jewish people. And in those time periods, like when we come out of Egypt, and like in the time period of Eliel and Elisha, during the reign of Ahav, when the service of the Baal is very prominent and very successful, and the people think that it's worthwhile to serve the Baal, in situations like that, the Jewish people need major miracles to impress upon them and to prove to them that God indeed exists and He's the only God. There are other time periods where the existence of God is clear to the people and the question is a more basic one. Assuming that God does exist and assuming that He's chosen the Jewish people, what type of behavior does God expect? In those situations, we need Nevim like Yishayahu who focus primarily on how the people should act and how they should improve their behavior and hence there's less need for miracles and more need for rebuke. In our last year, we began reviewing all the different miracles that Elisha performed beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 8. And we were in the middle of the story in chapter 6 about the siege on the city of Shomron. And in order to figure out when that siege takes place and when all these events take place, there's a need to dedicate a shear to the chronology of this entire unit. The shear will probably be a little complicated. And if you're not familiar with the Prakim and with the kings, you'll probably have trouble following it. But I do suggest that if you haven't read these Prakim recently, it's worthwhile reviewing them before you continue the shiur. In our study of Sefer Melachim, we identified a unit that began in Melachim Bet Perek Bet, that continued to Melachim Bet Perek Chet, where the entire focus was on the miracles of Elisha. Some of those miracles were personal ones to a small group of people, usually the Bnei Nevi'im. But there's also going to be some events and some miracles that help the Jewish people as a whole. And those we find primarily in chapter 6 and 7. We also noted that beginning in chapter 4, the king of Israel, even though he's mentioned several times, is never mentioned by name. Instead, from chapter 4 through chapter 8, the king of Israel is only known as Melech Yisrael, and we never know what his name is. In today's show, we're going to try to identify who that king is, or who those kings are. So let's begin with a quick review of what transpires during the life of Elisha. The story of Eliyahu leaving and Elisha taking over is sometime during the reign of Yehoram, the son of Ahav. And in chapter 3, when Elisha gets involved and helps the Jewish people in the battle against Moab, when the king of Israel and the king of Yehudah and the king of Edom fight together, there we know for sure that Yehoram is the king of Israel and Yehoshaphat is the king of Yehudah. So we know that chapter 3 takes place during the lifetime of Yehoram, the son of Ahav, and before the revolt of Yehu. In chapter 4, we had other miracles that Elisha performs, but they're all personal miracles for the Bnei Nevi'im, and we have no mention of a king, and we really don't know when they take place. In chapter 5, we have the story of how he solves the problem of the leprosy of Naaman. However, in that story, the king of Israel is mentioned, but he's not mentioned by name, and it's not clear exactly who he is. In chapter 6, we find a war between Aram and Israel, and we see that Elisha is helping the king of Israel in many ways, telling him where the troops of Aram are going to be hiding. And in that story, it seems that the king of Israel and the Navi Elisha get along very well. We prove that from Paragvah Pasachaf Aleph, where the king of Israel asks Elisha, he refers to the Navi as like his father, like a fatherly figure. And Elisha seems to be very helpful to the king. 
And we saw in Peregimel how Elisha said, I won't even talk to the son of Ahav. The relationship between Elisha and Yoram, the son of Ahav, was very strained. And here it seems that the relationship is much more amicable. And finally, in the end of chapter 6 and throughout chapter 7, there's a story of a terrible famine in the city of Shomron because the city of Shomron is under siege and Aram is about to wipe out the entire city and it looks like almost all is lost. Things are so bad in this famine and during this siege that women are planning to eat each other's children in order to stay alive. In the middle of that story, the king of Israel, again, we don't know who his name is, he blames this on Elisha and then finally, when he meets Elisha, and that's where we left off in our last year, in Perek Vav, Pasek Lamad Gimel, the last Pasek of Perek Vav, the king tells Elisha and says, Hinezot haram meit Hashem, if this terrible thing, if this terrible situation is from God, Hashem od, what else can I hope from God for? That seems like there's a king who cares about God, who davens to God, and he goes to Elisha because he's angry that God's not helping them. But at least it seems that there's a king who recognizes Elisha and talks to him and understands the concept of prayer. Finally, in chapter 7, we have the famous story of the former Tzoraim who discovered that the whole army of Aram has left and that brings to the salvation of the Jewish people at that time and saves the city of Shomron and saves the people from destruction. So the question is going to be, when did these stories take place? And to figure that out, we have to do a quick review of what happens during the time period of Yehu. Now the big problem is that the discussion of Yehu and his rebellion and his successor, Yoachaz, his son, and his grandson, Yoash, who takes over for Yoachaz, which is a period of some 40-50 years, is not described until chapter 9. However, in chapter 13 we find out that Elisha dies during the reign of Yoash, who is the grandson of Yehu. And the question which we asked before, which we have to deal with much more in detail today, how could it be that we have eight chapters of miracles about Elisha, and Elisha in his own life is living from 50-60 years from the end of Yehoram, the son of Ahav, through Yehu, another 28 years, through Yoachaz, Melchisa, another 17 years, and then during the reign of Yoash, he dies, we're talking about some 40, 50 years when he's a prominent Navi. And why would all the stories about him only happen during the 10 some years of Yoram, the son of Ahav, and nothing during the reign of Yehu and Yoachaz? What we're going to suggest is that indeed some of these stories do take place during the reign of Yehu and during the reign of Yoachaz. And that will explain why the king is called Melech Yisrael and not by his full name. After we explain why that may be, then we have to explain why are the stories out of chronological order. So let's try to pinpoint when these events happen. If we follow the story of the house of Ahav, we know that Ahav was a very powerful king. Shomron was a strong city. And Aram was our enemy during many of those years. But the front line with Aram was in the Gilad. I think the best proof of this is from the revolt of Yehu himself. When Yehu begins his revolt, Yehu is fighting in Ramot Gilad, which is in Transjordan. And that's where the front line is, both in the final years of Ahav, that's where Ahav meets his death, and also when Yehoram is fighting Aram, that's where Yehu is the general, and that's where they're fighting in Ramot Gilad. Yehu takes his army and then marches in Shomron and takes over the city. But during the reign of Ahav, Aram is not an existential threat to the Jewish people. However, during the reign of Yehu, we're going to find that Aram takes over all Transjordan. Ruvain, Gad, and Chatzim, and Asher are taken over by Aram during the reign of Yehu. Recall, in chapter 6 and 7, there's a terrible siege on Shomron. Aram has laid a siege to the capital city. Things are so bad that women are eating their children. It looks like all is lost. And then comes the big salvation. We're going to read now, later on in Sefer Malachim, in the description 
of the reign of Yochaz and what takes place during his reign, and we'll be able to pinpoint when that event takes place. In chapter 13, Pasuk Aleph, verse 1, Here we introduce the reign of Yochaz, the son of Yehu, who is king for 17 years in Shomron. We told he was bad. He followed the sins of Yeruvam, meaning the sins of Beit El and Dan, but we don't have idol worship like we had in the time of Achav. God was angry at Israel at that time. Here we're told the most important historical point for the purpose of our share. During the reign of Yochaz, the son of Yehu, the king of Aram, who gives him trouble, is Chazael, and Ben Hadad, the son of Chazael. And then we're told, Yochaz davens to God. God listens to his prayer. Because there was so much oppression from Aram, and there was so much trouble, God finally had mercy on them and saves him. Then God saves Israel from Aram, and then things go back to the way they were before. So what do we find? The worst situation between Aram and Israel is during the reign of Yochaz, the son of Yehu, Melech Israel. And during his reign, in the beginning of the reign of Yochaz, the king of Aram is Chazael. Remember, Chazael was appointed by Elisha. That story is back in Perachet. And Ben-Hadad, the son of Chazael. Now, the king of Aram is often called Ben-Hadad because Ben-Hadad is the name of their god. And very often we find that the names of kings of foreign countries carry the name of their god. Hadad being the god of Aram, therefore, the king is called Ben-Hadad. What's interesting is that Ben-Hadad is the name of the king of Aram during the reign of the house of Ahav. After that Ben-Hadad, the first, we'll call him Ben-Hadad the first for the purpose of the shiur, Ben-Hadad the first was king of Aram during the reign of Ahav and Yehoram ben Ahav. And then sometime during the reign of Yehu, Chazael becomes king of Aram. That story is in the middle of Perachet. And then during the reign of Yoachaz, Chazael dies and Ben-Hadad, his son, becomes king of Aram instead. And those two kings both gave Israel trouble. Let's go back now to chapter 6 and read how the story of the siege of Shomron begins. In Paragvah Pasach Avdalad, verse 24 in chapter 6, Ben-Hadad gathers his army together and puts the siege on Shomron. And then there's a famine, which is followed by the story of how the king of Israel is walking on the wall and hears women talking about eating each other's children. And then he blames Elisha for this disaster and then runs to Elisha. And finally, that's where he said, if this terrible thing is from God, what else can I pray to God for? So we see a terrible siege on Shomron. We see the king of Israel going to Elisha and praying. And afterwards, redemption coming, salvation coming. That story would fit perfectly if this is the Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. And if this king would be Yoachaz, the son of Yehu. And that this battle and this salvation, which is in Perak Zion with the story of the four Mitzoraim, would be the last bad event during the reign of the house of Yehu. To say that that siege takes place during the reign of Yoram, the son of Ahab, would be very difficult because we don't see Aram being so powerful that they could lay such a siege on Shamron during the reign of Ahab. Ahab is a much more powerful king. Things are much better. To prove that, we simply need to take a look at the end of chapter 10 and the end of Perak Yud where we describe the reign of Yehu and how bad things went after he became king. 
Tibur Torah in Pasuk Lamed Bet, chapter 10, verse 32, Bayamim ahem mechel Hashem lechatzot b'Yisrael ve'akim chazel b'chol gvul Yisrael. Here we see chazel is the king of Aram during the reign of Yehu. Min yardin mizrach Hashem et kol eretz ha'gilad ha'gadi ha'ruvinei ve'amnashi. We're talking about how Aram took over the whole eastern bank of the Jordan, the entire land of the Gilad and God and Chatzim Manasheh and Ruvain. And that shows you that Aram's control over the entire eastern bank of the Jordan was only complete during the reign of Yehu. And it wouldn't make sense that there would be a siege on Shomron when Israel is still in control of the Gilad. And therefore, if we're going to find a terrible siege on Shomron and the country almost destroyed, it would make a lot more sense if that siege is taking place during the reign of Yehoshaz, the son of Yehu, and not during the reign of Yehoram, the son of Ahav. One last proof, which will in many ways bring us right to the prophecies of the Navi Hoshea. So in the opening passage of Hoshea, we're told, Just like, that's just like Yishayahu. And also, That's the time period which we discussed in our opening Shurim on Yishayahu as well. Then he tells him to take an Eshet Zunim and he gives birth to these different children. And then, the first child is going to be called Yisrael. And in Pasuk Dalad, in Perak Allah Pasuk Dalad, we're told why. God says, in a short time I'm going to destroy the kingdom of Israel and I'm going to return the blood that was spilled in Emek Israel on the house of Yehu. What blood was spilt in Emek Israel? The entire coup d'etat that Yehu did when he came back from the front line and killed the king of Israel and all of his men and all that leadership that all took place in Emek Israel. And here the Navi is saying, because the house of Yehud didn't return to God as God had hoped, God sees all the blood spilled by Yehud in Emek Israel as bloodshed, and therefore a Navi referring to Yehud as a Maratzeach would fit nicely once we understand that all this killing that Yehud did was almost pointless because Yehud himself and his successors didn't take the Jewish people and return them in the proper direction. The reason why God gave the Jewish people the right, or Yehud the right, to kill all these people was in order to establish something much better. But if those who took over simply took power and didn't improve the state of the Jewish people, then de facto, all that work can be considered retzah. Finally, in chapter 7, we see the story how the salvation finally takes place, how the army of Aram hears a rumor and they all run away. And hence, it could very well be that chapter 7 took place during the reign of Yoachaz, the son of Ehu, and the king Ben-Hadad of Aram is the son of Hazel. Any of you who are listening are probably very confused about what we just explained. The explanation I'm giving is based on Shurim I heard from Yol Ben-Nun several decades ago. It's not the only way to explain the chapters. However, it does solve many of the problems because if we explain in this manner that Perak Vav and Zayim take place during the reign of Yoachaz, the son of Yehu, and Perak took place, let's say, during the reign of Yehu, and we saw Perak taking place during the reign of Yoram, the son of Ahav, then all the miracles that Elisha performs are evenly spread over the very years of his career. If we don't say that, then we have this tremendous gap of some 40-50 years where nothing happens with Elisha, and we only found out about him some 50 years later when he dies during the reign of Yoash, the grandson of Yehu. Then the question remains now, why is it that the Prakim are out of order? Let's return once again to what God told Eliel and Archorev. What I want to suggest is that when God tells Eliel at Har Chorev to do three things, to appoint Elisha the Navi instead of you, and to make Chazel the king of Aram, and to make you the king of Israel, that prophecy to Eliel 
is what's going to determine the order of the chapters and the units in Sefer Malachim. Because when Eliyahu leaves in Perak Bet, the main topic of Perak Bet is a transition of power from Eliyahu to Elisha. And once Elisha takes over, I'm going to insert into Sefer Malachim a whole set of chapters from chapter 2 through chapter 8, which we call Megillat Elisha. It's story after story about Elisha's miracles. In our previous show, we tried to explain why that Megillah was so important. We have to prove to the people, Sheesh Navib Yisrael. We have to solve the credibility crisis of Nevoah, that even though things went bad, it's not the Navi to blame for the fall of events, it's the people to blame. And therefore, we have story after story where the Navi, indeed, is correct. The Navi is able to perform miracles. God is with the Navi. And when we see that God is with the Navi, we can learn from there, de facto, that the people to blame for the situation that the Jewish people were in or the acts and the sins of the people and not the advice of the Navi. The last story in this Megillah of Elisha is in the beginning of Perachet. Here we have a story about Gehazi, who is now a leper, but he's sitting and telling stories to the king of Israel about Elisha. And as he's telling stories to the king of Israel, and this seems to be either Yoachaz or probably even, might even be Yoash, the son of Yoachaz, this seems to be very later in his life, as he's telling these stories to the king, a woman comes to the king, and this is the same woman who Elisha brought her son back to life. And in that story, we see the king asking Gehazi to tell me Elisha's stories. And it could be that this story about Gehazi telling Elisha's stories is the final unit, the final story in what we call Megillat Elisha, a whole set of chapters, a whole set of stories that describe all the miracles that Elisha performed. Here we also see that the king shows an interest in all these Elisha miracles and they're told as a story, as a unit. And it could be that this unit was a very famous and popular unit sung and told to the Jewish people during that time period, again, to prove the credibility of the Bnei Nevi'im. But because this entire unit is inserted before the story of the Revolt of Yehu, and to emphasize that the key character is Elisha and not the king of Israel, I never mentioned the king of Israel by name. Instead, it's a generic Melech Yisrael all the way through. And whenever there's a king who is a king from the house of Yehu, he's referred to as Melech Yisrael and not by a specific name. Because we're not going to hear about the house of Yehu until chapter 9. The next story in chapter 8, from Sukim Zayin to Tedvav, is the story of how Chazel becomes the king of Aram. Recall that's the other thing that God told Eliel to do. So after I finish the story, how now indeed Elisha has become the Navi instead of Eliel, and I've inserted into Sefer Malachim a whole unit, which we call Megillat Elisha, which confirms that God's word to Eliel came true, that Elisha is now the Navi instead of him, the next job that God gave Eliel to make Chazel the king of Aram is now recorded in Perachet from Pasuk Zayin to, to Pasuk Tedvav, from verse 7 to 15 in chapter 8. And the second commandment of God to Eliel is now fulfilled. And beginning with chapter 9, we have the story of the revolt of Yehu, and that is told in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And that's going to be the third command that God gave Eliel. Therefore, the order of Sefer Melachim is not necessarily in chronological order, but rather in the order of the fulfillment of God's prophecy to Eliel and Harchorev. To emphasize how God's prophecy indeed comes true, Sefer Melachim prefers to present the events in the order which they were fulfilled based on God's nevuah to Eliel and Harchorev. Again, First Megillat Elisha to prove Elisha's Navi instead of Eliyahu. Then the appointment of Chazel, the king of Aram. 
the second part of Perachet, and finally, Yehu becoming king of Israel in chapters 9 and 10. And that would give an explanation for why the events may be out of chronological order, but they're in prophetic order because they show how God's prophecies are being fulfilled. If our explanation is correct, then we have an understanding why is it that there's so many miracles that Elisha needs to, be, needs to perform. As we explained before, there's a ter- tremendous credibility crisis during the reign of the house of Yehu. During Yehu and Yochaz, because things get so bad. And we need to rebuild the faith of the Nevin, especially of Elisha, in the eyes of the people. So the people won't blame him for what's going wrong. Just like the king of Israel later blames him for what's going wrong. Finally, the king davens and God listens to his prayer. And the salvation comes. But we can appreciate why there's an entire set of prakim that focus on the miracles that Elisha does. And that will be in contrast to what we're going to find in the next generation. After God has proven himself to the Jewish people, and the people now believe in God, and we don't have a problem anymore of idol worship or credibility of Naveen or direction, but rather we reach prosperity like we see during the reign of Yoram, the son of Yoash, and the reign of Uziel, the king of Yehuda. The Jewish people are doing so well. They've returned to God. They're following his mitzvot. At least they're doing, bringing korbanot. They're serving God in Yerushalayim and they're prosperous and there's no other enemies. Now they need a Navi. For not only Yishayel, we're going to see Hosea and Amos and later Micha. We'll see many Nevim during this time period who are going to rebuke the people. But there's no need anymore to do miracles because it's accepted who God is. Now the question is, what does God want us to do? How are we supposed to act? That's the next stage. And for that we need a different genre of Nevim and that we'll see in our study of Yishayel and later in our study of Hosea and the other Nevim of Treasar who are going to rebuke the people and instead of performing miracles they're going to focus most of their attention on trying to improve the behavior of the Jewish people. So again, in an ideal sense, the job of the Navi is to shape the future, not predict the future, but certain times Navim have to do miracles and even predict events to build up their credibility so the Jewish people will believe in God. And the paradox here is that the need for miracles is when the Jewish people are on a low level. When the Jewish people are on a higher level, there's less need for miracles, but more need for rebuke and improving behavior.